0: Why did the Lord command that his church assemble together? Well, I think we obviously know that there's a great power in fellowship. The fact that we're able to assemble together to encourage and uplift one another. And there's a great privilege that we enjoy in being able to take some time together to be able to study God's word and to be able to gather some lessons from it that will give us the strength to face the weak that faces us. This morning, I'd like to begin with our discussion of the fully devoted life of service, and we're going to talk about the soul by beginning by talking about man. Man in his creation is an amazing creature. If I go through the scriptures and begin to explore the way God views man and man as he understands himself as he is, I read in Job chapter 7 and verse 17, What is man that you should exalt him? That you should set your heart on him? When you and I think about who we are, many times we seem so insignificant It seems as if, why did God love us so much that he would send his son to die for us? Why did God love us so much that he cared about the very things that we do, the way that we live our lives? In Psalms 8 and verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? In a very similar way, in Psalm 144 verse 3, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? Or the son of man that you are mindful of him? In Psalm 139, verse 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. You see, the more you and I study God's word, the greater appreciation we have For the way God made us, and when you begin to consider the way God made us, He made us with so many capabilities. The ability to be loving, to be loyal, to be understanding, to be compassionate, to be creative. And I could go on with a number of other adjectives to describe the way man is because God created him that way. And then I am drawn to passages like Mark twelve twenty-eight that Marty read for us just a few moments ago. And I want to draw your attention to verse 30 in that passage. He said, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then you get to verse 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And as you begin to look at that, you recognize there's so many facets, so many ways in which this looks at man's full devotion to God. The heart that we studied last week and man's emotional, the inside of him that has the capacity to love. His soul, which is his spiritual service. His mind, which is the mental service. His strength, the physical service, and his neighbor is himself, his social service to his fellow man. Well, Lord willing, each week we're going to look briefly at each of these. And so for just a few minutes, let us explore the idea of the soul. And to do that, we have to begin, first of all, with the soul studied. I've got to open my Bible. I've got to know what it means when God speaks about the soul We sing about it often. Where the soul never dies is one of the songs we sing to Canaan's land. Then we want to talk about the soul. Is special. What makes man unique? What makes us so special in God's sight? And then number three, the soul that serves. Let's begin by studying the soul and. As I go to the Bible, I can find it almost on every page, and as I do, I find out how important it is, and there are at least four different senses or four different ways in which the word soul is used in Scripture. And for just a moment, I want to differentiate them because we're going to look at the fourth one specifically, but I want to differentiate by pointing out that many times it's a synonym for the whole person. God will speak about a man's whole totality and call him a soul. For instance, in Acts 2, verse 41, after they had learned the truth, it said they, or those who gladly received the word, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them, talking about the lives, the whole person that was added to those Faithful apostles and added to the Lord's church. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, he's talking about the salvation of Noah and his family, and he says, That who were formerly disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. He's talking about the whole life of the family of Noah. But then I understand that it's sometimes used to describe the life. When a person becomes alive, for instance, in Genesis 2 and verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, the way the New King James translates it. The word for being there is literally the soul. Man became a living soul. When I go to Psalm 78 and verse 50, He made His path for His anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague. When He's using the word soul there, it's parallel with the word life. When a person has life within them. But it's often used sometimes as a synonym for the mind and the intellectual nature of man. And obviously if we're studying from Mark chapter 12, that's not the way he uses it because he says that a man should love the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And you've got to differentiate them. In fact, the Greek word for the New Testament word for soul is the word psyche, from which we get our English word, Psychology, which means a study of the mind. It's that part of man which has some thinking about him, some feeling. For instance, in Job 10 and verse 1, My soul loathes my life. I will give free course to my complaint. I will speak of the bitterness of my soul. It's a part of man that can become bitter. In Matthew 26 and verse 38, Jesus, as he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, My soul is extremely sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. My soul is sorrowful. It expresses that side of man, the intellect and the emotions as well. But it often refers to that part of man that survives death. As you take man and you begin to look at his composition, you recognize that you have his body and then you have his soul. The body may die, but the soul survives. In Acts 2 and verse 27, he was talking about Jesus and what would happen when he died. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Notice, his body was in the grave, but his soul was in the Hadean realm. Verse 31, he foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He's talking about the soul coming back to the body. In Matthew 10 and verse 28, he speaks of not fearing the one who could kill the body, but couldn't do anything more but to fear the one who could destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Now, with that in mind, I want you to think about that part of man that survives, that part of man that is distinct from his body, that part of man which is an eternal soul or an immortal soul, that's the spiritual state of man. That side of man can grow stronger and mature. In the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, and verse 16, he's giving a picture of a man who is perhaps growing older in life, growing frail, and he says, Let's not lose heart, let's not give up. He said, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. You can have your physical body begin to disintegrate, begin to fall apart. But he says that inward man can grow stronger and stronger each day. It is also that part of man that is disturbed when it sees sinful behavior. When you studied the books of first and Second Peter, you recognize that Peter was living in a time when persecution and difficulties were facing the church. And one of the greatest things that one can do in trying to study that is to go back and look at an Old Testament example, and he does. He goes back and he says about Lot. He said, "He delivered righteous lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked." For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Every day, his internal man, his spiritual part was distressed as he saw those ungodly people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But let me focus even further. It is that part of man, that spiritual state of man, that offers praise and adoration and glory to God. In Psalm 146, verse 1, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And Isaiah 26 and verse 8, Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. The desire of our soul is for God. It's that part when you sit in that seat and as the Lord's Supper is passed and you partake of that bread and you partake of that fruit of the vine and you in your mind remember the Lord's suffering, the Lord's death and with appreciation You remember it, recognizing what Jesus did for you. Our soul is that part that expresses that. Now having tried to establish the spiritual state of the soul, let's talk about why it's so special. Why is man so special in God's sight? We began with that. Why did God take note of man? There's something unique about man that's different from the animal kingdom, from the dogs and the cats, from the elephants and the alligators. What is it about man that is unique and is special? Man bears the very image of God, it is that part of man that will survive. No, all the animal kingdom, when they die, will cease to exist. Every other part of God's creation shall be brought to an end except the soul of man. When I read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, this earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. It goes on to say that all these things will be dissolved. There's not going to be anything left here But there will be something that will survive, and it will be your soul. If the soul is what is going to survive, then it ought to be the most precious, the most important thing in all of my existence. Listen to Matthew 10 28 again, and think about what he's saying. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Oh, there's a man who may be able to kill my body, but he can't kill my soul. But God can destroy it in hell. Matthew 16, verse 26. For what profit is a man if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? If my soul is eternal... Why would I take something so fleeting, so temporary in exchange for it? In Hebrews 10.39, he said, but we're not those who draw back into perdition, but of those who have faith to the saving of the soul. In First Peter 1 and verse 9, he says, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your soul. The scriptures keep saying, Save your soul, save your soul, save your soul. In Psalms 49, I would love to take the whole chapter, but time will not permit it. But let me for just a moment focus a few verses for you. In verses 5 through 8, Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. Notice, the redemption of their souls is costly. There's not a man anywhere in any place who has enough material wealth to buy one soul. verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. Do you see what Psalms 49 is stressing? Our soul is so precious because it can't be bought. It's priceless. Now with that in mind, there's some things that I can do for the preservation of my soul. I need to open my eyes and recognize that there's things I need to do. For instance, in James chapter 1, he's talking to a group of people with whom their religion has become nothing more than just an outward appearance. And he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflowed wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. You've got to make sure that your life reflects you're getting rid of the sinful paths and that you are pursuing God's direction, His implanted Word, or if you're reading the American Standard, engrafted Word, which is able to save your soul. James goes on in chapter 5, and he says in verses 19 and 20, brethren, If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I've got to recognize that there are people out there who love me enough and care enough about me who see when I am going astray, going off the path, to say to me, hey, you need to look and see the direction you're going. You need to come back to the Lord. Why? Your soul is so important. When someone talks to you about your soul, recognize they really love you. They really care about you. They're trying to save your soul from a spiritual death. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against the soul. Open your eyes. Recognize that the world that you and I live in is filled with trials and temptations and allurements to try to bring us into this ungodly world but he says don't do that they war against your soul and then in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 he talks about a group of men whom God has chosen set aside for the very purpose of watching out for our souls he said obey those who rule over you submit be submissive for they watch out for your souls As those who must give an account. And let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Those men who meet qualifications as set forth in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 are appointed by the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and they serve at God's pleasure for the shepherding of, the watching for, the overseeing of the souls within that congregation. If those men who shepherd our congregation have to come to you and say, we're worried about you, we love you, we're afraid your soul's in jeopardy, don't reject that, don't ignore that understand that they've got to give an account for that before God. They're trying to shepherd your soul. Now for just a few minutes, let's talk about the soul that serves. The engaged soul in worship and service is described very well by Moses. I want to set this up for you just a minute before I go to those passages. I want you to imagine, here's the children of Israel... They're a whole new generation now. Most of those who left Egypt have died in the wilderness, and there's a new generation of young people. And they're on the mountains of Moab, and they're ready to go into the promised land. And yet they have been worshiping God and serving God, but they've been on the run, so to speak. They've been traveling from place to place to place. They're about to go in and be settled. And what God wants them to do once they're settled is to recognize that we have a spiritual obligation before God to serve Him and let this affect our lives. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 29, but from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart, with all your soul. Continuing the idea in chapter 10, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve, notice that word, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You love Him, but you do it with that inner being of man. I tried to find what I felt like was one of the best examples of this, and I think I found a passage which I believe will be very helpful. It may be valuable for you if you want to open your Bibles there. In fact, you might want to underline some words. You might want to take notice of some things. And I want us to look at the first part of Isaiah chapter 58 because this reflects a people whom God has said, okay, here's what it looks like When you are a soul that's serving God, and for a moment let me set this up for you, one of the features of their worship to God and their service to God was a fast that God had proclaimed. It was a feature of their worship to God. We're going to fast to God, it's going to show the humility of our soul as we think about who we are and what we're doing, that inner part of man. There's going to be two parts to this. There's going to be their perception of it, and there's going to be God's perception of it. Let's begin, first of all, by their purpose in the fast and looking at verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to pause a moment or two as we go through this. Cry aloud, spare not, Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Now listen carefully. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls? And you take no notice. In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all of your laborers. Now, I want you to notice... The prophet is supposed to tell the people their sins, but God reflects the way they're acting to begin with. Look with me at verse 2. Yet they seek me daily. We're not talking about irreligious people. We're not talking about people who are seeking other gods. He says they delight to know my ways. They enjoy taking time to see what God says on a subject. As a nation that did righteousness. And they did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They're keeping this fast. They're keeping it faithfully. If you were going to parallel it, you'd say they're at church every time the doors are open. They ask of me ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. When the hymns were sing, they would sing loudly, they would sing with joy in their hearts. And you'd say, well, what's wrong then? They ask a question in verse 3. We have fasted, they say, and you've not seen. We've afflicted our souls and you take no notice. God, look at us. We're trying to do this fast the way you want us to. And then he says, in fact, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is this a fast I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it a day to bow down his head like a bull rush and to sit or spread out sackcloth and ashes? And would you call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? I want you to notice their purpose is stated in the latter part of verse 4. To make your voice heard on high. Their idea in the affliction of their souls in the keeping of this fast was so that God would hear. And God's action to respond to this is would you call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? Is your soul in tune with my soul? Well, God states the real purpose of the fast in verses 6 through 11. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of your Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall cry, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and He shall say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst... The pointing of your finger, the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall be as the dawn of darkness in darkness, and your darkness shall be at the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Do you see the picture he's given here? In their minds, my soul that I praise God with, that I love God with, if it is the right kind of soul, it serves by being compassionate toward our fellow man, not mistreating our fellow man. You see, the inside of man has got to be the kind that is special because it looks at others and it's not, to use the animal phrase, dog eat dog. It's a one that says, I care and I'm going to reflect the nature of God, the light versus the darkness. Let me bring all this together. God cares for your soul. David in Psalm 142 and verse 4 made a real sad statement. Look on my right hand and see for there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Have you ever felt like occasionally that nobody cares where you'll spend eternity? Oh, but don't think that. God really cares about you. You ought to prize your own soul. You ought to value your own soul. And I want to end with a question that's going to tie to the the invitation song. And that is, what will be the home of your soul? In just a moment, as we sing this song, I want you to think about where your soul will spend eternity. Either it will be with the God of heaven and Jesus Christ, the Son, and the blessed Holy Spirit and with the redeemed of all the ages or it will be with the devil and his angels. And you have a choice where you want to spend your eternity. If you're not a Christian, you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you are a Christian who has been walking with the world and living an ungodly life, you need to be restored. This is a great opportunity for you. If you need to respond, please come as we stand and sing.